turn in the back of your songbooks to page 968, beginning our study, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and a catechism is really just a summary of the Bible's teaching to help us dig into the Bible and see its teaching more clearly. And so we're studying the Westminster Shorter Catechism, page 968. We've looked at question one, what's the chief end or purpose of man? Why did God put us here? Important question. Well, man's chief purpose or end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now we look at questions two and three. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. What do the scriptures principally teach or primarily teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now let's turn to Psalm 19 in our Bibles. Psalm 19, it's found on page 538. Page 538, Psalm 19. Looking at the power of God's word to direct us to him. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law or word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer." Is God's word, God's word, may he bless us by it.
brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the question, what is the chief purpose of man? Why did God put us here? And really, the Bible's answer says question and answer one is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What a gift that God has told us, I am your center. Now, because of our sin, we don't like that. We want to be our own center and life to revolve around us. And if you get in my way, too bad for you. But that's when life is backwards and broken. The right way is God made us. He's the center. And when our life is aimed at him, that's when everything's going the right way. That's when we're living out our purpose. That's where we find our meeting to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But now we come to the next issue. So if that's my purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him, how am I to do that? And again, because of sin, we want to say, well, God, I'm going to glorify you my way. I want to do what's right for me. And there again, we fall in the way of sin. Glorify God your way? If God is truly the center, shouldn't we ask God, how do you want me to glorify you? What's your rule for me? And that brings us to the Bible. God, help me to glorify you your way. Teach me your way in the Bible so I may know how to glorify you. You know the story of Narcissus, the Greek God who was in love with himself. And in his self-love, he one day saw a reflection of himself in a pool of water. And he fell so much in love with his reflection that he stared and stared and he couldn't take his eyes off himself until he finally pined away and died. Well, we have this narcissistic tendency to revolve everything around ourselves and say, I want to glorify you my way. But God's word pulls us out of ourselves and says, no, no, Lord, Help us to glorify you your way. That's why Jesus came, to pull us outside of ourselves and give our lives to God and his word. This morning, we want to look at God's perfect rule for us to direct us how to glorify and enjoy him. God's perfect rule for us, what it is, where it's found, it's his word, it's found here, and what it teaches us. God's perfect rule for us, what it is. I love the question too, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy? That is just the right question. That's the question we need in the 21st century. It's so essential, so crucial, crucial to living out our purpose. God has a rule to direct us how we should glorify him and enjoy him. He doesn't leave it to me to decide how I'm going to glorify him and enjoy him. But he calls me again, come to him, not only to know your purpose, 
but how to reach that purpose. We need him. We need his rule. We need his direction. We need his word. And so we ask the question, God, how do you want me to live for you? How do you want me to glorify you? That's the only right starting point to put ourselves again before God and say, what do you want from me? You know, that's the only rational starting point. God made us. And it's fitting that the creator should set the rules for the creature. That the maker sets the rule for the product, not the other way around. It's irrational to say to the God who made me, now I'm gonna tell you how I'm gonna glorify you. That's irrational, it's not gonna work. That's gonna fall apart. You see that already in the Garden of Eden. God made Adam and Eve and he gave them so many gifts to enjoy in the garden. There's so much beauty there and so much blessing. And they're made in his image and they have so much wisdom and intelligence and ability. And they have so much what we call general revelation. God's glory shining all around them in the stars, in the sun, in the moon, in the trees, in the flowers, in the land animals, in the fish and the birds. But even in the garden, there's only one way that they could know how to live for God's glory. Only one way for them to know how to enjoy him. They needed his word. And God gave them his word. He walked with them. He talked with them. He told them how to serve him. And that word is always a covenant word. It's the bond between God and his children in which he binds himself to us, gives himself to us, and takes us and binds us to him. It's the bond. And that's what they had in the garden. He spoke to them how to live for him, how to enjoy him, how to bring him glory. And now they must trust and obey his word in order to live, but he also gave them a word of warning. If you don't glorify me my way, if you don't enjoy me according to my word, if you go your own way and follow your own word, your own opinion, your own feelings, you're gonna die. They had to ask every moment, Adam and Eve, even in their perfection, what rule has God given to us to direct us how to glorify and enjoy him? And every moment they could say to each other, Adam, hey honey, hey hubby, you remember how we're supposed to glorify God and enjoy him? Yes, by trusting and obeying his word. And then came Satan. Don't worry about what rule God has given you. You're smart. You're wise, you're intelligent. You follow your own wisdom and insight and eyesight, Adam and Eve, and things will go better for you. Do what you think is right for you. That's what Satan said to Adam and Eve in essence. Then you'll be free. So they did. 
They followed their own feelings and their own way and their own thoughts. And that's when the human race went crash. From the beginning, even before the fall into sin, God gave man his rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. It must be that way. But because of sin, we don't trust God's word and to be the wisdom we need. Oh, if I follow that, my life is going to go badly. I'm going to lose my freedom. I'm going to lose all my joy. That's what we worry about. And then we come up with other ways we think we should glorify him. Other guides. Some think that human intelligence, natural human reason can lead us to fulfill our purpose. Well, Romans 1 says, yeah, the creation shouts loudly the glory of God to everybody. But because of our sin, we shut it out. We don't want to know God from creation. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So it leaves us without excuse. Human intelligence, natural reason won't lead you to a right relationship with God to bring glory to him. Well, some say, let your conscience be your guide. Others say, follow your heart. Others say, if it feels right to you, it is right for you. Follow your own truth. Where has that gotten us? That just leads us astray. You can't trust the human heart. You can't trust human emotions. Well, one day I'm here and the next day I'm there. One day science says this, the next year it's changes to opinion. Today the truth for me is this. Next year the truth for me is that. And my life goes into upheaval. And the human race goes into upheaval. You can't let your conscience be your God. You can't follow your heart. You need to follow something that never changes. Yeah, but what about the regenerate heart? That's what some say. Uh, but if your heart is born again, follow your regenerate heart. But even the regenerate heart has the law of sin living in it tempting us, pulling us the wrong way. Even the regenerate heart always needs to be guided by the word of God. Some say follow the majority. The majority is always right. Was it right during the Third Reich in Germany? The majority is often wrong. Some rely on traditions. We've always done it this way. I was taught this from the time I was a little kid. It must be good, it must be right. Often our traditions are wrong. Even if it's been done for centuries, that doesn't make it right. No, what is God's perfect rule for us? It's not your heart. It's not your conscience. It's not your feelings. It's not your human opinions. It's not science. These things are in constant flux, constant change. They're not a stable foundation that's to live in a constant earthquake. There's only one, the word of God. The only rule that can be trusted as an infallible, reliable guide for glorifying God. Only God's word has no mistakes. Only God's word never changes. 
The Bible says the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, that can be hard to accept because God's word can be so contrary to everything I feel in my heart. It can run against every custom and tradition that I was taught and go against everything my culture teaches me and puts me against the grain. And it requires so much self-denial to say no to my feelings. The strongest passions living within me to say no to that in order to say yes to God's rule in order to glorify him. And that could be so painful. What if the word of God runs contrary to everything my family and friends think? So that if I say, I'm going with your word, God, I'm trusting and obeying your word. And that means my friends and my family are all going to say, we don't want you. And that's the choice so many face. It's painful business. To answer this question, what rule has God given us to direct how we may enjoy and glorify him? And the only rule is the word of God. It's painful business. It's easy to say. That leads us to the second question. Where is the word of God found? Where is the word of God found? And the answer is in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. That's the only rule. That's the only place God speaks infallibly. That's the only unchanging word you can trust. The only inspired word. And inspired means the only word God gave to be written down by human authors or human writers. But they wrote it down in such a way that there are no mistakes in all scripture. It's the Bible. Is God breathed, says 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Is God breathed. Is breathed out by God. It's his own word. And therefore is useful for instruction. For rebuke. It, it, it tells you off. Correction. It sets you straight. And for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 14. From infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. But I still have the question. Why should we accept the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments as our only rule, as the only word of God? Because the word of God is where the light and power of our life are found. You go back in your Bibles to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the first six verses speak about the glory of God in creation. Man, creation is powerful. In verses 4 through 6, it talks about the sun like a bridegroom. The sun is strong. Don't we notice it when, when it shines on, on the hoarfrost, 
What beauty and what strength. The sun gets up in the morning, comes out of its tent like a bridegroom, stretches, flexes its muscles, and starts to run its course across the sky from one end of the earth to the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. Wow, powerful. Then you get to verse 7. The law, which means the Torah, the instruction, the written word. The word of the Lord is perfect. Reviving, restoring the soul. Can the sun reach the soul? The deepest part of a human being's life? No, only the word can touch that. That's why we need the Bible. Hebrews 4 verse 12. The word of the Lord is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Only the Bible can get there. The sun can't. The beauty of creation can't. As loudly as it speaks of the glory of God, only the word can touch the soul and convert you and change you. We'll ask why in a moment, but again, look at Psalm 19 and its sevenfold description of Torah, the written law of God. There's seven attributes of the Bible, characteristics. Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. It's complete in every respect. It's healthy. It's wholesome. It contains everything you need to fill the deepest part of your life. That's what the word perfect means. It restores the soul. The same word used in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Second attribute. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The word is amen. It's reliable. It's faithful. It's a sure guide for what to believe, how to live, what choices to make in your life, what's right, what's wrong. It's sure it makes the simple wise. It's a source of wisdom. Number three, the precepts of the Lord are right. Means they're straight, they're level, they're correct. You can build your life on it because it's a, not only a solid foundation, but it's a level one. And it rejoices the heart. Jeremiah says, I, I ate your words and it gave joy to my heart. Number four, the commandment of the Lord is pure. It's clear. It shines brightly. It's radiant, says some translations. Make your eyes light up. Remember when Jonathan, son of Saul, was fighting a battle against the Philistines and Saul had made this silly law that nobody should eat until the battle was done. And he was so hungry and his eyes were growing dim and his body was growing faint. And finally, in hunger, he reached out his staff, took some honey that was dripping from a honeycomb, licked it, and his eyes were lightened. That's what the Bible does to the fainting soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The next one, 
Five, the fear of the Lord is clean. There's nothing rotten in it. There's nothing wrong in it. There's nothing to spoil it. It's clean. It stays good forever. Number six, the, word, the rules of the Lord are true. They're stable. They're f- firm. And number seven, they're righteous. They're holy and acceptable to God. Righteous altogether. Oh, the gift of the word of the Lord. No other book, no other book has this kind of power. Not only does it tell you how to glorify and enjoy God, brothers and sisters, but when you read it, you meet God, God meets you. And he gives you power to glorify and enjoy him. There you meet the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who forgives your sins and takes away your wrongheadedness and wrongheartedness where you want to run in the wrong direction and make yourself the center of your life. There you meet Jesus who crucifies that, nails that old self to the cross. There you meet Jesus who rose from the grave from death on Easter morning to give you the new life of walking in God's direction. No other book like it in all the world. No book has life-changing power and authority like this one. In no other book will you meet the true God and come to know him and truly and enjoy him fully. Still, how can I know for sure that this book is the only right book to rule my life and no other book is the word of God? Three reasons. The first and the most important one, it's a personal book. It's unlike any other because it proclaims Jesus Christ. This is where you find Jesus. And there's no one like Jesus. There's no man that came to earth like him. No one lived like him. No one loved like him. No one spoke like him. No one died like him. No one rose like him. He's beyond human philosophy. Jesus is simply somebody nobody could ever invent. So the message of Jesus makes the word, the Bible, immeasurably unlike, immeasurably unlike any other book. You cannot invent such a person. There are 350 prophecies of him in the Old Testament. Half of them have already been fulfilled. The other half are being fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the future. That's the first reason that we can know for sure that this book is the only right book to rule my life. It proclaims the person and work of Jesus Christ who's unlike any other. Number two, it's powerful. So we already said from Hebrews 4, it's living and active. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. When you read it, it reads you. Because that's the Holy Spirit's workshop. That's where he works on you. That's where he judges you and convicts you of your sin. That's where he plants the seed of Christ in you. 
forgives all your sins and gives you a new life, makes you a new creation. The Bible does all that it says it will do. All the things listed in Psalm 19, it restores you, it makes you wise, it enlightens you. It's sweeter than honey. It's more valuable than gold. It warns, it discerns error. It turns derelicts and deadbeats into doers. It turns haters into lovers, despair into hope. It transforms drug addicts. It sets adulterers and homosexuals free. It cleanses the covetous. It reforms hardened criminals. That's why prison wardens in the U.S. right now, many of them are so hungry to have Bible teachers come in because they find that when the inmates get to know the scriptures, they meet Jesus and nothing changes them like him. It's powerful. Paul says they can put me in chains, but the word of God cannot be chained. Personal, it's powerful, and it's proven. The Bible is an anvil worn out by many hammers. It's endured so much criticism, hatred, and attack by human philosophy, but long after the philosophy falls, the Bible still stands. It's proven true by history and archaeology and science and psychology and all the disciplines because it's the word of God. They said Pilate, Pontius Pilate, never existed until they discovered the Pilate inscription in Jerusalem in 1961. They said Caiaphas, the high priest, never existed until they found a coffin with his name, Caiaphas, the high priest, in 1990. They said the story of King David was a myth until they found a steel, a, 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 a metal plate with the inscription, House of David, in 1993. They said there was no prince named Joseph in Egypt until they found a number of Joseph coins in Egypt bearing his name and image in 2009. And since 2006, Newsweek recently reported, since 2006, scientists have been uncovering at the north end of the Dead Sea, the ancient city of Sodom, under five feet of soot, and they're still busy uncovering it today, starting in 2006. While there are so many other ways in which God is proving his word to be true. But you know, if you embrace the scriptures, you embrace God. If you reject the scriptures, you reject God. We want a God who will do things our way, cater to our wishes and feelings, and conform himself to our image. That is so backwards, but that's what we want, like good narcissists. But what's that gonna do but ruin us? God came to redeem us, and he says, no, no, no. You're deformed by sin. That's what's wrecking you, doing it your own way. You need a God who will take you and transform you back into his image. This is where that happens. This is where you meet Jesus Christ, the true and perfect image of God. This is where he meets you and he saves you and he works in you and you hear the voice of the good shepherd here 
and he brings you back to God. And he transforms you back into the true image again. Oh, that takes a lifetime. But as we stay in the word, that's the power he works in it. Well, thirdly, and and just briefly, what it teaches. And that's really where the rest of the shorter catechism goes. What do the scriptures teach us so that we may glorify and enjoy God? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Two things. What we are to believe about God and what we are to do for God, faith and works. Everything we are to believe, everything we are to do for God's glory. This too is a punch in the gut for modern man. I'm not letting anybody tell me what I should believe. And God says, well, then you're left to the lives of the human race. Only this can tell you truly is the only rule of what you should believe. And the human race says, I'm not going to tell anybody what I should do. That's for me to decide. Then again, you're left to the lies of the human race and the foolishness of sinners. Only God who made us knows the right thing about himself that we should believe, the truth. Only God who made us knows the right way to live knows how the product should function. Only he has the operator's manual manual, because he made us. And that's where faith comes in. Lord, if you made me, and if you loved me so much, you would send your son to die for me. How could I go wrong by surrendering my life to believe all that you teach me about yourself here and to do all that you tell me to do. How could I go wrong? It seems like a big risk to take. I put my life, I throw my life in the hands of my God and in his word and say, take me, Lord. Shape my beliefs. Shape my life. It seems like a big risk. What am I going to lose? People are going to reject me. I might lose my job. It's the safest thing you can do. God is the safest place to put your life. God's word restores the soul, makes the simple wise. It rejoices the heart. It makes you happy. It enlightens your eyes. It endures forever. Far more valuable than fine gold. Sweeter than the sweetest honey. It's everything. May God, by his Holy Spirit, empower us to say no to ourselves. And yes to God and his word. Amen.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the only rule to direct us how we should glorify and enjoy you. Left to ourselves, everything goes the wrong way. We saw that with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Left to ourselves, we're ruled by the lie. But you have come into our life with your word to say, no, this way, this way. Lord, we pray that you will give us faith to believe all that you teach us and to follow all that you command us to trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Amen.